Having spent 15 years at big law firms, law firms lose out on a lot of market opportunities because the way they approach their client relationships. We want to make sure that these women know we really want them as clients. You're going to feel comfortable here. This community was made for you. So I would love to see more women controlling more wealth and women who are looking to invest that wealth in a way that promotes equity. Welcome to season three of the Beyond Capital podcast. People always ask me, what is the secret sauce to marrying profit with purpose? We're back for another season to bring you the stories of successful leaders that are building and scaling purpose-driven businesses. I'm Eva Yazari, general partner of Beyond Capital Ventures. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Scoot. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how conscious leadership translates impact in all facets of a business and how it can show up in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. Whether you're a leader of a company, team, household, or just yourself, we hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of impact for you and feeling inspired to take action every day. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Jesse Gabriel. Jesse is the founder of All Places, a business and legal strategy firm that supports women asset managers and entrepreneurs. Previously, Jesse worked for a number of law firms, including Baker Hostetler, where she was the youngest woman to lead her own team and launched the firm's investment funds practice. Jesse is the general counsel of the New America Alliance, an organization that advocates for the Latinx asset management community and chair of the board of New Destiny Housing, which builds permanent affordable housing for families that have survived domestic violence. Welcome, Jesse. Hi, so happy to be here. Welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. So I know you outside of the show, and I know you've had an incredible career and background as a lawyer, as a founder, as a board member, and as an advocate. And so before we dive into All Places, which you are currently founder and CEO of, tell us about your early influences. Did you always think of yourself as an entrepreneur? I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I never planned to be an entrepreneur. I would say that I, uh, I wouldn't say I was shoved into this role, but I came to this position through a lot of encouraging. So as I think like a lot of lawyers, I didn't go into the profession because I was comfortable taking a lot of risks or that's what I wanted my life to be about. But there are just, you know, I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, probably like the two of you too, at a, I hit a certain inflection point where it seemed like a lot of different forces were pushing me in that same direction. Incredible. And I know from friends and actually my spouse, who was a corporate lawyer as well, who moved on similarly to you, <laughs> that it is comfortable to, you know, work in a law firm. It's at least stable. A lot of hours though. Yes. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm sure Jesse works a lot of hours now. I definitely work more hours now. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely, I mean, I think that's the founder experience, right? Regardless of uh, where you came from, you're probably working more hours as a founder. So I would say, yeah, being a corporate lawyer, the good things are you have a really stable and very healthy compensation, right? And for me, that was really important based on, you know, how I grew up to know that I was going to have that paycheck coming in every month. That felt 
really good to me. How do you and your firm think about billable hours? You know, I know mm. my, my brother, that, that's kind of an interesting topic. Just, I know it's not on our list, but my brother, he was an attorney at Baker and Botts, I think. He did international dumping cases and, you know, they had so many hours that they had to bill kind of per year and sort of the firm's sort of culture in a lot of ways is, is driven by what those standards are for associates and, and others. And so how do you, how do you think about billable hours in the context of delivering, client needs and just the whole picture of it. Yeah. And I'll say for, for anyone listening who doesn't have a partner or friends or is themselves a lawyer, you know, the way traditional law firms operate is that they bill based on the time people spend and then people get compensated. So for instance, when I was a partner, even I got compensated based on how many hours I built. Right. And so obviously what does that do? That encourages people to over bill. I mean, to, to put it really bluntly. So when, you know, when I was creating all places and thinking, you know, if I'm going to create my own firm, what do I want it to look like? It was really that particular issue was really important to me. So we actually do a lot of work on a flat fee basis, and then we do work on a billable basis. And then on the, on our side, nobody on our team gets compensated based on their billable hours. Really? So we just wow. remove that altogether. I appreciate how you designed your model to be you know, something that you thought was better for your employees. And so can we, can you maybe just zoom out and tell us more about all places and how you designed a firm with the forces that you were talking about kind of moving you towards entrepreneurship and, and why, how that all came together? The, I'd say the biggest inflection point was a dinner that I was hosting in July of 2019. And it was a dinner of women GPs. So women who had started their own asset management firms and we were going around the table and we were doing kind of an ask and offer, right? Like what can, you know, you have this group of amazing women with incredible intellectual and financial resources, you know, what can they do to support you? And a number of women around the table said, you know, Jesse, what you can do to support us is start your own firm. That's when I started thinking about it. And so to get to your question, Eva, you know, one of the first things I thought about was who do we want to serve? You know, I have a strong belief that I'm an exceptional lawyer and everyone on on our team now and in the future will also be an exceptional lawyer. So when you have those skills, who do you want to use them to support? And so for us, that was female asset managers and entrepreneurs. And I can you know, tell you more about what that is. But that was really the, the primary driver when I was first creating what would become All Places. And what type of work do you do, especially for those maybe who don't interact with you know, legal firms very frequently? What, what is your bread and butter? About half of our clients are asset managers. So that means venture capitalists, private equity, private credit, hedge funds. So the work we do for them is we work with a lot of people who are starting for the first time, right? So people who have invested, maybe they worked at a big firm, maybe not. They're forming their fund for the first time. So we walk them through that process, including preparing, you know, doing all the legal work. So all the documents, but I'd say the more valuable piece of what we do actually is talking to them about what these structures mean and how they're going to impact their business later on. So for funds, that's the work we do. And then we help them with deal work, right? As they start making investments. And then on the founder side, it's kind of the flip side of that. So it's typically founders come to us when they're going through fundraising and they want expertise around that fundraising process, which we have because we work with so many investors. When these women were saying, hey, the best thing you can do for us is start a firm. What were the top pain points for them that they felt you would solve for them if you did that? A lot of women had had the experience of being 
talked down to being not receiving prompt attention. So I'd say that was the biggest thing where they went to a firm and felt like whoever was servicing them didn't really value that relationship or treat them with respect. And then the number two was they felt like they just weren't getting great work, particularly for the price. Right. So I'd say one thing that came up over and over again, and this isn't related to being a woman, this is just related to our firm doing things right, is that we're really committed to you never getting a surprise bill at the end of the month. And if you haven't worked with a lawyer, you maybe that you don't see the significance of that. But if you have worked with lawyers before, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Do I ever? (laughs) (laughs) I just paid the bill for our Series A transaction, which closed in December. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, Ed, we do that work on a flat fee basis. So. <laughs> Series B. This so is how we're going to I was going to ask, do you have male clients? That was that was like sort of part of the dynamic, but we were, I was going to save that for later in the conversation. I'm happy to answer that now. The answer is yes, we have male clients. Good. Yes. So we are not an exclusively female provider, but we are explicitly focused on those communities because we want to make sure that these women know we really want them as clients. You're gonna feel comfortable here. This community was made for you. And then the same way women work with male-owned law firms that primarily service men, All Places works uh, with men and male founders. Cool. Yeah, and you know, to share as a VC myself, when I left Wall Street over a decade ago, the language around VC made me uncomfortable. And I was coming from the hedge fund industry. So that contrast to me always really stood out. And I think a lot of it is what you're talking about, Jesse. It's There was almost like kind of an insider club. And if you weren't able to navigate your way into that language, it was really hard to break into the space as a general partner. And I just found my own path, you know, happened to be an emerging markets investor because of a family legacy in, in, in Africa. But I, I totally agree and, and, and really see the value of, of what you're providing, which is why I'm so happy to have you here on the show. And I think when it comes to impact, what we really realize in these conversations is that it isn't always easy to balance impact with kind of business goals. And we believe that impact can be baked into a business model. And just a reminder, Scoot is a B corporation and I am an authentic impact investor. (laughs) Um, So we are walking the talk, but tell us more how that plays out for you. Um, Is there, is there a tension between, you know, impact and And then flat fee work, how does that work at all places? For the most part, there's no tension. So for the most part, this is a really easy conversation for us because we, while we are a mission-driven law firm, we are a law firm serving an underserved community. So it's just an automatic opportunity, right? It's the same way, you know, when we're talking about investing, right? And you're investing in undercapitalized communities, those are more likely to be higher return investments because they're traditionally undercapitalized. So for us, it's a hu- this is a huge opportunity. I mean, <laughs> having spent, I don't know, 15 years at big law firms, law firms lose out on a lot of market opportunities because the way they approach their client relationships. It hasn't been an issue for us. However, when I look at the future of our company, you know, one thing, the mission for us really is to help more women control more money and then use that money in a way that creates greater equity overall. And one thing that I would like to do is as our company grows to make sure that we can still serve very early stage companies and hopefully that we can get profitable enough that we can then provide lower subsidized rates for early stage companies that are being created by women who can't afford our regular rates. 
That's incredible. And I, and I also love how you highlight the flip side of an underserved group is really an opportunity. And that's kind of what you've created at, at all places as well. And I, and I also appreciate the, the kind of cross-subsidized model because we have a lot of companies that I wonder how they can afford a, you know, a very high bill rate. Mm. And I think that they still you know, can be incredible businesses that have impact and returns at the same time. As you were saying that, Eva, I mean, one thing that that did make me think about is that, you know, even putting aside the gender lens, we believe, you know, with some evidence that we are the best at what we do. So for us, there's still this tension and maybe it's, you know, kind of cultural messaging around how you set your rates, right? If we really think we're top of the market, should our rates be reflecting that? But at the same time, we really want to be service oriented, right? We really want to be inclusive with who we can service. So as an early stage company, there is some tension, you know, between those two ends. Can you measure the impact that you've had? And you mentioned evidence. Talk a little bit more about that. Uh, You know, I've worked with a lot of lawyers on the other side uh, and at all places, we're almost always working with lawyers on the other side, right? Because we're doing deal work or we're negotiating LP investments. We see our counterparts at a lot of other firms. That's the evidence. (laughs) So, you know, we, we work with some really wonderful teams on the other side and we've worked with some teams on the other side, which really were not wonderful, but who were also billing at a much, much higher rate than we were. I'd love to ask you a question like that's, that's in the zeitgeist right now. We're recording this in January, 2023. There is a potential ban coming up on non-competes. And I know this may be a big part of your world because founders typically have non-competes baked into agreements or contracts and even VCs have non-competes. And so I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this because I think it can be looked at from different angles and I think the audience would find it really interesting. I find it really interesting too. You know, my general philosophy is you don't need to prevent somebody from competing with you when they leave, when they leave period. This is a separate, you know, putting aside the question of confidentiality, right? Nobody's trying to say that you shouldn't have confidentiality agreements or you shouldn't be able to prevent people from using your sensitive information in their next job. But it's interesting because coming from the legal world, there are no non-competes, right? We're fiduciaries. So you really can't prevent somebody, a lawyer, from servicing a client because, you know, they're fiduciaries, it's their job. So I've never operated in the non-compete world. And for me, it works just fine. But I do know that in particularly in, you know, fund management, right? And in early stage companies, non-competes are really, really common. And uh, I think it's an interesting conversation too, around whether, you know, the data that we have seen shows that, you know, reduces creativity, that it isn't necessarily beneficial to anyone. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a couple different ways to look at it. You know, you can, you can sort of argue it from either side, but I heard and read about, you know, California is the famous example of a state where non-competes aren't enforceable. Yes. Right. That became the case. And Jesse, you might know the specifics of this better than me, but there was something that happened like in the early seventies with some kind of case or something where this basically became sort of the law of the land in California. It wasn't like, or maybe it was in the at some point in the 20th century, mm. there was some kind of thing that happened. It was an unintended consequence mm. of some other legislation or something else. And some people say that, you know, the innovation factory of Silicon Valley came up after that, not mm. before. And the reason is because not just, hey, you know, go and start work for a competitor, but more like for these big companies like Xerox or 
you know, they would have these employees working there. They'd have this really great idea. And then the company would say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to do that idea this year. Well, in, in Texas, if you have a non-compete, you're like, well, I got this great idea, but I can't go do it myself anyway. So I guess I'll just kind of, it won't happen. But in California, you're like, oh, I'm just going to leave. Yes. And so what that does though, besides allowing for the spawning of the new company, it actually puts the bigger companies on the guard for these types of things. And that's why a lot of these guys like Xerox and others have these kind of venture studios where when someone has an idea that they can't really justify in the context of this large, you know, fortune 500 business, they say, oh, well, stay with us. We'll fund you and you can go do this little incubator deal. Mm -hmm. So that's, so I think the non-competes do limit innovation for sure. Yeah. I think I read that a big analysis of this in The Economist too at one mm. point. Anyway. It's a big topic. Yeah. And I was, I'm, I'm sure it comes up in your work as well, Jesse, like with the companies and the VCs that you work with. Yeah. And I, you know, we've certainly recommended that companies obtain non-competes or obtain non-competes from companies they're investing in as a protective measure that's currently available. You know, right. so it's definitely not something where we we take a stand and we're like, we will not create any non-competes for our clients. You know, it is it does allow additional protection at the same time. I think where the value of non-competes lies is that it's really hard to enforce confidentiality agreements. I think if we could have more enforcement of confidentiality agreements, we really wouldn't need non-competes at all, because that's really the main concern that somebody's going to take your intellectual property and they're going to go use it to create a competitive product. So what are some of the engagements that you have found you know, most rewarding? Are there any of them that you can give us examples of and talk about that are you know, beyond the attorney-client privilege phase? <laughs> One of the best things about this firm is that our clients are all awesome. So, you know, when I was doing my my personal prep uh, for this podcast, I was looking at this question on the, you know, list of potential questions, which was, what is it about your work that, you know, gets you out of bed in the morning? And one of the biggest things is our clients are so cool. I mean, they are running amazing companies for the most part. They're mission-driven companies and they're founded by people who are nice, <laughs> brilliant, generous, uh, ambitious women. So I'll, I'll give a couple examples. So one company that I think both of you are familiar with is Rosie, yes. which was started by Lindsay Harper, who's an OBGYN and focused on improving women's sexual health. So this is an area that as women, we have typically been shamed about. We've been told not to talk about it. Lindsay will talk about how as a doctor, you're given very little or no training on this subject. And here she is, a one female week. founder. One week of training. That's it? In medical school. I think it was the OBGYN sexual oh. thing was like one week, she said. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. We interviewed her right here. We did. Yes. Yeah. So that seems right, right? One week. Sure, that's enough to cover all of it. Yeah. So that's really meaningful to be able to use what skills we have to support her in creating this product that has already impacted the lives for the better of so many women. Like that's that feels like a gift for us. Absolutely. And I know that, you know, you also maintain an incredible company culture, as, as you kind of pointed out with them not having the compensation of your your team and your associates be based on, on, on billable hours. And just to kind of highlight you, Jesse, as a conscious leader, what are some other ways that the mission of what you wanted to create at all places translates into a company culture? You know, we've only been doing this for two years. So we're, and maybe this is, you have both been doing this for longer than I have. So maybe you'll tell me that it's, it's constantly a learning experience. 
But every year I think about new things and new ways that we could be doing things better. So for instance, this past year, we experimented with closing our our quote unquote, closing our offices for one week in the summer and one week at the end of the year. So instead of just having people take vacations and then try to, you know, you're kind of checking your email still, or you're wondering how this project's going, or should I reach out to so-and-so? I know she's on vacation. We just removed that altogether. How's that going? It was a success for us. It was a success for us. So, you know, we planned it with our clients. We didn't want anyone to feel like they were being left out in the cold. We made sure everybody knew ahead of time. And this is a great thing, too, about having a mission-driven company is that you tend to attract mission-driven clients. So we got notes from a number of people saying, oh, this is so great. We're so happy you're doing this. This is the type of cultural awareness that we expect from the companies we work with. And that really, you know, reinforced it for us. And in terms of the, on the company side, it did exactly what I just mentioned, which was everyone actually got to fully disconnect, not worrying about what was going on at the office. Yeah. I highly recommend it as an experiment. It won't work for all companies. We do it actually, but we are not in the service business necessarily. And, uh, Yes, I want to say I fully disconnect, but my portfolio companies are my like my other children. So if they if they get in touch with me, I will get back to them with something urgent. But yeah, I actually I really appreciate it. And I think absent a, you know, government mandated holiday like they have in Sweden where, you know, they basically say goodbye and and Finland for the whole month of August. Mm-hmm. Setting this up as leaders is a way of having a broader impact on the community. So I I think that that's a perfect example. Can I interview the two of you for a second? I'm really curious what other things you've done in your companies that you've tried out and, you know, thought, oh, this is actually something that really adds to our culture. I'll just go quickly first. I run a virtual organization. I've done that well before COVID. So our, our, our team has been dispersed and virtual for over a decade. And one of the things that is very simple, but it really works. And every fellow that we have that passes through comments that it is glue for our team is a coffee chat. So we meet every other week, sometimes every week, and we just sit down and the rule is we cannot talk about work and we have a zoom and everybody gets their coffee and Maybe somebody's walking their dog or maybe somebody's traveling and, you know, on the streets of New York, but, or maybe, you know, everybody's just sitting in front of their computer with their coffee, but we're all really getting to connect. And it sounds so simple, but it really helps us, you know, be together, even though we're not physically together. I like that. Yeah. I'm going to write that one down. Yeah. The first things that came to my mind were, and we have an unlimited vacation policy. That's an interesting topic too. Pros and cons of that one. We don't need to get into it, but I'm curious. Yeah, I've, I've found the pros to outweigh the cons. I've, d- I've definitely done both of them. You know, you have to have the right managers in place. But the things that came to my mind around company culture were, you know, first of all, you have to have really well-defined core values. And, you know, repetition is the mother of education. If your company's growing, the people who come into the company are, you know, nowhere near where the founders are in terms of kind of having brought that culture way deep into their hearts, even though they may want to, or they think that they are, there's still a long journey for them. And so repetition's good there. We do an all hands once a week, you know, which is, we do it on Scoot, have a great time with that. And we also do a quarterly in-person gathering. So we're a remote business. Even next week, we have um, everybody coming in from wherever they are. And we spend one full day as a team going over our accomplishments of our goals for the previous quarter, 
and sharing what our goals are for our different departments for the coming quarter. And then we have a lot of fun as well. And then the teams can kind of meet before or after that, depending on what makes the most sense for them. So we do a mixture of like full remote and, you know, in-person, you know, in terms of that. And then, you know, whatever the values of the company are, you just really have to live those. You really have to refer back to them. And um, now since we did this Series A, we're in a huge hiring cycle. You know, as the CEO, I, I will do a briefing for every new employee on core values and take them through them um, and make sure that they kind of get their one-on-one time with me on that. That's not everything, but those were the first things that came to my mind. And Jesse, we've had uh, other guests on the show that have highlighted some of their company culture practices. And one of them that really stands out to me is Ian Walker of Left Coast Naturals. They make hippie snacks, and Ian incentivized his team to ride bikes, to work, to eat organic food, and he would actually give financial incentives for those things. And I think it all tied back into his view of sustainability, and as Ed pointed out, kind of the core values of the company in terms of, you know, caring about where your food and where you're kind of you know, how you're taking care of yourself and your wellness and your carbon footprint. I love these ideas. All things to kind of try on, see if it's the right fit for your company and kind of, you know, yay or nay it. But I love that people are being so much more thoughtful about this as they're creating their company and that the it's very hard, right, to retroactively change your culture. So it's, um, these are exciting conversations at the startup stage. I did want to touch on one area where I think you have a tremendous amount of expertise. And we originally met because you were hosting meetings for general par- female general partners to get to know one, any- one another, share best practices, almost this kind of give, get, or ask, offer type setup. And so I know that you have been a witness to so many women starting their own venture funds. And has your view of the marketplace of female GPs or underrepresented GPs changed or evolved over time? Can you give us kind of like a current state of that marketplace since you're able to have a broad view? I'm happy to give some anecdotal evidence. I'll put a plug here for the fact that the data around these sorts of things is terrible. So one thing, you know, we're really all hopeful for, I think, in the short term is better data around this. In terms of what we're seeing at all places and what I've seen, you know, working with women GPs over the last five, six, seven years, it feels to me like, you know, part of what we saw in COVID about a lot of women and people of color in particular, but really everyone reassessing their current corporate life and making more of them making the decision to leave and start out on their own or maybe join a smaller company. We're certainly seeing that in the venture space too when it comes to women. So there are more women who seem now to have the confidence or are more supported in this effort to charge out on their own. So the idea of women starting a venture fund from my experience is a much less, oh, wow, that's crazy. How remarkable. It's a much less remarkable thing than it was five years ago. Yeah. And that's so heartening, right? It's so heartening to have conversations with women who are thinking about doing this and who are feeling, you know, really confident, but nobody should feel that confident about starting a venture fund. Eva, as you know, it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult, really difficult. Um, And there are a lot of structural barriers, you know, particularly around uh, around wealth to being able to start a fund. You know, we're seeing more. It's exciting. Yeah, some of the things that guys do, women want to do, and then they just realize that the guys were dumb for doing them in the first place. 
We just don't, well, this is not one of those, but yeah, I, I think that. Well, no, it's it's an interesting <laughs> comment, Ed, and for me, what stands out is that like there were some things about running a venture fund in the traditional way that I was unwilling to do, and I really wanted to rethink the playbook, and I felt that I actually was able to do that, and it was an incredible strain of entrepreneurship for me, even though you know a VC is kind of a templated type work. I think it's harder than running a company. In setup and fundraising phase, for sure. So Jesse, um, let's get into some rapid fire questions oh, yeah. with you. Let's do it. Tell us what book is on your nightstand right now. On my nightstand, which doesn't exist, but next to my bed right now is The Testaments by Margaret Atwood. And these are going to sound like I'm making up these answers. I'm like, I work with women. And so I'm reading Margaret Atwood and I'm reading um, How Women Lead by Julia Borstein. Yeah. And then, you know, I have a couple other little things going. What is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? Oh, so um, I'm one of those, God, stereotypical people who starts my morning with water with electrolytes. Nice. Um, (laughs) All water has electrolytes in it. Water with added electrolytes. (laughs) Thank you, you, Ed. Thank you, Ed. But, and then now I'm experimenting with having coffee like 90 to 120 minutes after I wake up because I really like the Huberman Lab podcast. I I don't know. I love that. And so that was something he suggested. So I'm, I'm experimenting with that right now. You and I are very aligned in our, in our morning liquid habits. We're going to change that question to what are your morning liquid habits? (laughs) I don't know. That could go a little, I I feel like we can. All right, next question. Name something that's giving you hope right now. Our clients. What is a trend, it's kind of in the legal market that you've got your eyes on? What are you watching? I mean, definitely this non-compete question. And then, you know, it's not strictly legal, but really watching the fundraising environment, right? I mean, it's been, it was a pretty interesting 2022 and uh, curious to see how that shakes out for funds and for startups in 2023. So you have a great newsletter, but what is your favorite resource for staying up to date in your, you know, in current events or your industry? Is there something else that we can recommend? I'm a big podcast fan. So I love the Beyond Capital podcast. I love the Huberman Lab, not related to my industry at all. Oh, I love the um, Venture Unlocked is an excellent podcast about first-time fund managers. Really interesting. Oh, really? Highly recommend. Looking back, what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? So at 20 to 25, I still had a lot of uh, professional confidence because I hadn't gotten senior enough to be like really beaten down. So I'd say... I'd say what I would have told like my, with my 30, 35 year old self was to just continue to be yourself. You know, you don't need to change who you are for your professional environment. And if, and if that's actually necessary to succeed, you, you should, if you can find something else. Unless you're a jerk, then you should change yourself. You're a normal person. <laughs> that's true. Well, we should probably all be working on changing ourselves all the time. Okay. We're all a little bit of jerks to yeah, a lot of jerks. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Finally, what's one piece of advice you would give to a listener right now who may be thinking of launching their own business? Probably the most powerful force for early stage companies, in my experience, is community. So reach out to other founders in that area, just other founders you know that you have connections to. In my experience, most founders are really generous with their time in supporting other founders and start building that community because as any founder knows, it is so difficult and it can frequently feel incredibly lonely. And to have that community to fall back on, I mean, it's made, it's just been transformative for our business. So to wrap up, 
Jesse, looking into the future, what is your bold vision for all places and how you can leave a mark on the world? I'd say my bold vision for the world that I hope all places can contribute to is just greater capital equity. So I would love to see more women controlling more wealth and women who are looking to invest that wealth in a way that promotes equity. When the data comes out 10 years from now around what percentage of assets are being managed by women-owned firms, I'd like it to be higher than 1%. Yes. What is it on the LP side? That, that contributes to that? Yeah. Like, so I know on the GP side is kind of what you're talking, the general part, you know, the people who run the firms, but like in terms of the LPs who provide the capital. It's low. I don't know the number. Our is fund it similar has, or? it might be between zero and 10% though, okay. because there are, I think, I think it could be a little bit higher than the actual money managers. But the money manager is pretty low. Yep. What is it? As Jesse pointed out, the data is kind of imperfect, but I think I've also heard like one, 2%. The most recent wow. best data we have is 0.7% for women-owned firms and 0.7% for firms majority owned by people of color. Yeah. And and just one other data point on this, the, the largest female-run hedge fund is now currently, I think has 1.8 billion under management. That's peanuts compared to her peers who have 20, 30, 40 billion at this point, or, you know, certainly above 10 billion. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a great goal. Yeah. We can look back. We can do a look back at episode, Jesse. We'll thank you so much. Season 33. We'll do a look back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're not forward. over 1% before season 33. We're, we're, in, we're all failing. Yeah. Let's make it happen. Let's go, everyone. For sure. Thank you, Jesse. It's been an absolute pleasure spending time with you. And, and thank you for your incredible insight. Thank you both so much and for the work that you're doing at your respective companies and also through this podcast. We appreciate you. It's been really fun. Thank you. Bye. Once again, it's clear that conscious leaders can find a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company in a truly holistic way, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me at EA Stevens on Twitter. And you can follow me at Conscious Investor on Instagram.